Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. We're coming up on the one-year anniversary of the Bay Area's first shelter-in-place order. Last March was scary, but certain aspects felt kind of novel— Now we have a new normal, and some changes could be the norm for a long time coming. Like, will we always carry hand sanitizer in our bags? Maybe book club will permanently meet on Zoom. And will roller skating forever be a thing? And it's not just small habits. This year has brought massive shifts, too. Today on the show, we're taking a few minutes to peer into a crystal ball and try to predict how this pandemic will shape our lives into the future. And in an upcoming episode, we want to hear stories from you, our listeners. I'm Katrina Schwartz, and this is Bay Curious. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You've got special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. To get at how our lives may be permanently affected by the past year, I wanted to hear from experts on the unavoidable parts of life that most of us experience directly. So we're going to hear from someone who specializes in mental health and family relationships, someone focused on education, and a couple folks thinking about what our commutes will look like once this is all over. First, we're going to hear from Narja Sahari Dillon. She's the executive director of Crisis Support Services of Alameda County. She says the mental health effects of this could be with us for a long time to come. Anytime somebody has a cold, there could be additional anxiety. That is this a virus, is this COVID? There is going to be, um, for a lot of people, avoidance of crowds for a long time. Even after things open back up, there might be a hesitance to, um, for some folks to go to a concert, to go back to school. Our relationship with grief will change for a long time. Folks um, have died without being able to say goodbye to their families, and loss of those rituals will have tremendous impact for a long time. There isn't a lot of research about mental health in a pandemic, Nargis says. Providers are doing some guesswork here. 
The studies that we're drawing from when we think about the future are mostly focused on natural disasters, which are the closest thing to a community-wide trauma. And those studies show that the impact could last as much as three years within communities. Nargis is also a licensed marriage and family therapist. And she remembers seeing couples after the 2008 recession and how their money problems were often at the root of their relationship struggles. Economic hardship has negative impact on people's um, romantic and intimate relationships. There's incidents of um, intimate partner violence that increase when families are under financial stress. So that's something that we worry about depending on how long the economic recovery takes. Nargis and her staff have been supporting people going through mental health crises virtually. She suspects they'll keep that up into the future, and that's a good thing. If you have a one-hour appointment with a therapist, if you have to commute to see that therapist, that could become a three-hour commitment. We might not always think about barriers to access, like transportation, like mobility, um, like time. So there's evidence showing that virtual mental health services are really here to stay to some extent. The biggest thing she wants people to remember coming out of all of this is that it's going to take time to recover. It's not like we can all just get vaccinated and immediately go back to the way things were. We need to realize that once the medical emergency is over, the mental health portion of this and the socioeconomic emergency will continue. We're still going to have to be dealing with hunger, with tremendous anxiety and depression across populations, but really magnified in communities of colors who've had tremendous economic loss as well as um, loss of their loved ones during the pandemic. One of the most devastating things about this pandemic is how people aren't just struggling with one hard thing. Everything is connected. That shows up in a big way when we talk about how the pandemic has affected kids and their families. Education doesn't happen in a silo, and often the biggest impact on a kid's learning isn't a class or teacher, but what else is going on in life. I talked with Janelle Scott, a professor at the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Education about this. Janelle's got two kids of her own, one in middle school and another in high school. She says parents and teachers are sharing responsibilities more in some cases, seeing one another's roles in new ways. It's been interesting to see the empathy arc <laughs> develop since the start of the pandemic and shelter in place last spring in that we saw a kind of immediate outpouring, not only of public empathy for teachers, but also sort of this groundswell of pay teachers whatever they want, <laughs> right? That, that we've been really uh, woefully undercompensating them for what they do. I think that arc of empathy has been severely tested and we're now seeing deep frustration from many families that teachers are, have been reluctant uh, to return to in-person le learning until particular conditions are met. And so that's one of, I think, the more critical challenges in front of us in the next few years is to restore some two-way empathy <laughs> um, between families and schools and to really appreciate that teachers and school leaders and district leaders are really bound up in the same kind of destiny that families are. You know, 
the teachers that I am in contact with have been very tested emotionally and psychologically and intellectually. And so uh, while they really would rather be uh, in in-person schooling, they understand the challenges that families are facing probably better than most people who are opining in the public square. Some of these issues are happening all over the country, but I'm curious if there's anything unique to the Bay Area that you're seeing or you might predict. I think we're seeing... Um, you know, some concerning trends. The Bay Area always had higher than average private school enrollment. And I think those numbers are likely to increase as more economically advantaged parents are able to opt out of public schools. Um, again, this growing frustration that schools are not reopening in a timely way or in a way that uh, those parents perceive to be timely. You know, bringing it to the very personal level, like what has this changed for you? The challenge for us has been to remind ourselves constantly that we're not just doing school right now. We're doing school in the midst of a global pandemic, and that's different. And that means for us, um, our academic expectations have been somewhat uh, lowered <laughs> um, because what's important for us are physical and social and emotional well-being. And so I also know that I speak from a very particular place of privilege. And so I don't want to suggest that my standpoint is one that um, that is it should be or is held by by other parents. And so, you know, for me, it's just been um, a real test of patience and empathy and a reminder that none of us chose this. None of us would prefer to be doing it this way. And yet, the conditions require it. You know, I think about the over 400,000 people who have died in the last year in times where I feel personally tested. I just remind myself how fortunate we are to be frustrated by not being able to get into the Zoom room. The concentration of illness um, in Black and Latinx and poor communities in California is important uh, because it means that some communities, given our segregation, have no idea. They have no idea um, the scale of loss and devastation. The pandemic has highlighted the extreme inequality in our society, and it's forced us to look it straight in the face. Some advocates are hopeful that as we emerge from the pandemic, it won't be to business as usual. Jamario Jackson is a senior community planner at the nonprofit Transform. He looks at racial injustice through the lens of transportation and urban planning. We're in a global pandemic, but at the same time, it's causing our lawmakers, it's causing key decision makers, it's causing a number of different industries to pay attention, right? To acknowledge these injustices that they have caused and ones that they haven't caused. To give you examples of how racism is baked into transportation, there have been studies that come out that have shown that certain uh, mode options, mode choices, are discriminating in low-income communities based on price. So you are maybe trying to take a trip somewhere and you're wondering why the cost is so expensive. Oftentimes there's data that shows and points back to the fact that um, when you're commuting to or from a low-income area that it's costly. One of the ones that we're dealing with on a regular basis is that just ensuring that um, a historically marginalized area like East Oakland has other mode options to choose from. Right, like beyond the bus, beyond BART, what else do we have? What infrastructure do we have to get around? Are there bike racks? And so just making sure that there's ways for us to move in the, in the choices of movement that we want to have. 
Something like 40% of people can do their jobs from home right now. But that means that more than half of people do not have that luxury. And many of them rely on public transportation. Demario says that transit agencies need to listen to the communities that rely on their service. But those agencies are currently facing a grim budget picture. I called up Susan Shaheen to get her take on the uncertain future of transit. She's the co-director of the Center on Transportation Sustainability at UC Berkeley. I used to ride BART from Berkeley to the Embarcadero, and it was, you're crammed in there. You are definitely breathing other people's air. And it's just hard to imagine people feeling comfortable with that, honestly. I mean, I'm like uncomfortable standing within six feet of anybody anymore. Right. I think that uh, what's going to be important is communicating to the public that it's safe and also communicating to the public how to wear masks what the process should be to get on the transit vehicle, off the transit vehicle. Uh, We could communicate crowd management techniques through apps, perhaps, or signage uh, that that help people understand better how to social distance or what to expect in terms of wait times. And I think a lot of uh, transit agencies are investigating new ways to purify the air on board. But it's going to be critical, Katrina, to communicate all of those actions to the public, because that's how we're going to get people feeling comfortable again. When you look two to three years down the road um, to a time when the pandemic is over, what long-term effects do you see on the Bay Area's public transportation system? So I think we're going to see more focus on trying to make transit a more enjoyable experience to, to really encourage people to come back. I do think we'll also see more supportive partnerships, ways to get to and from transit perhaps more easily with a micro transit vehicle or an Uber or Lyft or a taxi or a bike. So focusing on sort of that complete trip. And there's been a lot of discussion about seamless payment and subsidies or fareless transit policies. So I think we may see some changes in how we pay for transit as well. We can't talk about public transit without also talking about traffic. The two go hand in hand. So I'm curious, when you look ahead two to three years into the future, what are you seeing in terms of the kind of traffic we can expect? This is something that we need to to take quite seriously because we do see an increase in vehicle registration rates. And that's not just due to the virus. It could be due to the fact that some services are cut. So when we come back, I think we've got to pay very close attention to the vehicle miles traveled, the time of travel, the congestion, and also the demand for parking when people get to the workplace. Are we even going to have the capacity since a lot of people were indeed taking public transit to work before? Have there been any positive side effects of the pandemic on transportation? Oh, absolutely. The slow street movement, I think, is is very exciting. And modes of active transportation are now being really considered as ways to get around. I think a big question is, how can we lock in some of these policies? How can we make some space grabs, if you will, for more dedicated bike and walking facilities, but also more dedicated bus lanes for express buses. These are the, I think, the silver linings that we see from this pandemic. But it is a very serious situation for public transit, no doubt. 
Now that we've heard from some folks who study this stuff at a systems level, we want to get more personal. We're working on an episode, and we need your help to pull it off. We want to know, how has your life in the Bay Area changed in the last year? Record your story on the Voice Memo app on your phone and email it to us. Our address is baycurious at kqed.org. Or call and leave us a voice message at 415-553-3334. I'll put all the info in our show notes. Special thanks this week to Nargis Dillon, Allison Thompson, Janelle Scott, Jamario Jackson, and Susan Shaheen for trying to predict the future in some very uncertain times. Bay Curious is made by Susie Racho, Katie McMurrin, and me, Katrina Schwartz. Our show is a production of member-supported KQED in San Francisco. I'm Katrina Schwartz. See you next week. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest, and I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just... What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.